welcome to episode 434 of the Cyber Law Podcast. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we are going to express here do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, not even our family or our pets. As my family, at least, reminds me daily or at least weekly. Joining me for the news roundup, Jane Bambauer, professor of law at the University of Arizona and a director in the Center for Quantum Networks. Richard Steenan, who's the executive editor of Security Current and the founder of IT Harvest. Nate Jones, who's the co-founder of Culper Partners and formerly with the Justice Department and the National Security Council. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. We've got a lot to talk about, lots of real news. This is, I should say, sadly, the last news roundup we will do in the year. We will come come back with a bonus episode or two uh, interviews I've done. So we're going to have to cover a lot of ground, and then we'll come back in January and pick up what we missed. I thought one of the stories, which people are, are just too tired to cover as much as that probably deserves, is Apple, CSAM, and end-to-end encryption, CSAM meaning child sexual abuse material. Jane, can you bring us up to date on what Apple has done? Yeah, so the program that they had proposed, although not yet implemented, was going to automatically check hashed versions of people's photos on their devices against hashed versions of known child pornography images And if there were more than, like, if there were multiple matches, then authorities would be alerted. And I I think this, I mean, I thought the design of the program seemed good. It doesn't obviously solve the entire CSAM problem, but it made some marginal progress and without really exposing people to significant risks. But the security community was really opposed to it, mostly because it just provided a mechanism for other sorts of automated detection. And so Apple was under a lot of pressure. They have now announced that not only are they abandoning and and not implementing the CSAM program, they are also adding end-to-end encryption for iCloud backups. So iMessages and photos that automatically get backed up. That was the That was sort of still a route for law enforcement to get iMessages because even though the messages on device were end-to-end encrypted, once you backed up your messages, that that you know that was that gave Apple access. But now that access is is going to be closed off as well. So the law enforcement community is obviously upset by this. I I thought you know one quote of theirs that I personally I, I think is kind of sound is that okay we've now wrapped our heads around the idea of security by design. We need to start thinking about lawful access by design as well. So I think customers in general, at least those who are paying attention, maybe either don't care or are happy about it. But but when they get locked out of their phones, they might, <laughs> they might be sad. <laughs> they might feel differently. Yeah, it, it, yeah. It's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a protection of sorts, but it's protection mainly for people who are really worried about their privacy. And the most obvious niche market for that are people who are in the business of distributing child sexual abuse material. They really care about their privacy. And this kind of guarantees that if they keep it on their phone, if they keep it in their cloud backup, they can be guaranteed that they can can distribute it to their heart's content, they can store it to their heart's content, and no one will ever be able to figure it out unless they catch them with their phone turned on. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, okay, there are a couple things that Apple claims that they're doing in lieu of this. Well, one is that they have this communication safety feature, which seems like to me like it's going to do almost nothing. But basically, a family can opt into this feature where then if someone is trying to access child pornography, then the family is notified or or someone's notified. It's not quite clear who. And that includes, you know, if kids, if your kid is sort of producing images of themselves and sharing it. So, okay, that's something. But the other thing that that maybe exacerbates the problem, but it, it sounded like this is going to be something that people can opt into, which to me sounds like it's a recipe for the people who are most likely right. to engage in child <laughs> pornography to opt in. It, it, else it guarantees to privacy to crooks. And, <laughs> and for the rest of us, it depends on how clever we are about remembering to turn on the right buttons. Yeah, and I agree with yeah. you. This business about preventing child nudity 
is something one the parents have to persuade or insist that their kids give them access to their phone so they can set up the system. And then it really just tells you that the kid is sending or receiving nudity, nude pictures. And right. you know, Lord only knows, that is a worry and it's a good thing. And I hope every parent has a relationship with their adolescent child that allows them to monitor that. But this has nothing to do with preventing the massive exploitation of child sexual abuse material and the industrial scale distribution of it. Yeah, the actual black market does not yeah. depend on kids using their cell phones to produce their own child porn. Yeah, yeah. I agree. But here's okay. a here's a million dollar idea, which I've shared with several mobile security companies. And nobody's implemented it. It'd be ridiculously easy to have an app that does not allow you to take nude pictures. And every yes. parent could install that app on their child's phone. Yep. I, I think that's right. If they can if they can do facial recognition, I'm sure they can do other kinds of recognition too. <laughs> Although I I don't I don't know where they'll get the the the, the data sets to train the machine learning on. <laughs> Actually, I guess I do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's plenty of data sets. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Apple is saying that they're going to put this encryption on the, in China as well, which is oh, a that. bit of a surprise. Although, you know, Apple doesn't actually control its data centers in China. They're run by a provincial government entity. And the encryption that they use on their phones in China is not the same hardware security module that the, the rest of the world uses. And that's at the insistence of the government. So you suspect that between those two things, the Chinese are not worried that the data is encrypted because they can probably get the key. Okay, yeah. the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, pass every year. Increasingly, it's the only piece of legislation other than recognition of the state bird of Missouri that passes. And so everybody wants their bill to be part of the NDAA. Nate, how did cyber issues fare in the NDAA? In terms of volume, I think they fared reasonably well. Substantively, I don't know that a lot of these <laughs> these provisions that made it in make a whole lot of difference, but they did get a lot in there. And you know there there are things like additional money for cybercoms hunt forward mission they've codified the state department's cybersecurity bureau which was brought back under the biden administration they created a new assistant secretary of defense position for cyber at the pentagon over and that, biden that one was over objections. the objections yeah. yeah which you know it's it, you know, as a bit of an aside i think their objections seemed a little soft to me it, i get the sense that the biden administration feels like cyber personnel is getting a bit loaded up around the government yeah. bureaucracy and it's kind of like how many more people do we need on this but but it didn't seem like it was a strong objection. They provided some authorities to Cybercom with presidential approval to respond to systemic and ongoing attacks against the United States, which I think a lot of people would argue probably exists already. And so, you know, again, a lot of these things either are codifying the status quo or doing things that are moderately useful. I think a little bit more of the story is, is what didn't make it in, right? You know, one thing that didn't make it in was a Congressman Langevin has been pushing this proposal to designate certain entities as systemically important to U.S. critical infrastructure and, and make them report on, on make them report on their security incidents. So, yeah, that's yeah. right. And so that got that was removed late in the game before the compromise was passed by the House. But there's there's still you know some action on that. It seems the Biden administration sent a letter to Langevin earlier this fall, noting that they're taking a look at doing some of that regulatorily anyway. So, you know, but again, they're not going to get the tech sector that way. They they can do a lot. I mean, the banks killed this too, I think. And yeah. they, they, they won't have trouble finding a way to regulate the banks in the way that they wanted to, is my guess. But tech sector has, has skated. The one thing that made it in that I thought was interesting, there had been a fight over banning spyware purchases. And the intelligence community had said, or the intelligence committee, but probably acting for the intelligence community, said, hey, there should be an exception for intelligence purchases. Which, you know, seems like a no-brainer. Of course, we should be able to buy this at a minimum to test and to uh, exploit. But for some reason, the Armed Services Committee got all shirty about that and said they wouldn't put in the exception because they wanted a briefing on why it was necessary, which again raises some 
sources and methods questions. But instead, what they put in, I thought was actually pretty good. It says the intelligence community is supposed to report on spyware that poses a counterintelligence risk to the United States. Yeah, that's right. And it gives the ODNI power to to prohibit certain agencies from from using or purchasing the software, but it doesn't outright ban their purchase. And so, you know, I think that at a minimum, sort of as a transparency measure, this is a this is a meaningful thing, and I think will be helpful. So, I agree with you. It's a it's a worthy cause. I, I mean, I, th- we'll, I think the whole we'll talk more about the spyware problem. I think exactly. a little bit later it, in the episode. It, it, it's 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 a moral panic but, on the left. But, yeah. Okay. And the other thing they took they left out is the Journalism Protection Something or Other Act, the JPCA. Yeah, the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act, Preserving oh, okay. Journalism. And that was that was a weird thing that gave publishers an antitrust exemption to get together and negotiate with Google and Facebook to insist on being compensated when their headlines were reproduced and their yeah. traffic was enhanced. And that fell out probably because... People on the left and the right hated it and sort of liked it in equal measure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's hard to for me to tell how much people were actually opposed to the substance of it. I mean, obviously, Facebook made some statements late in the game, right? I should say Meta. I apologize, but I, I'm uh, sure they hate it. They, they clearly hate it. They said, yeah. "Fine, we'll take our ball and go home. We don't need to actually send you any traffic." Thanks. Yeah, but you know, most major media organizations are pretty supportive of this, as far as I can tell. They still carry a fair amount of weight with folks on the hill. But I think you know, as as a piece by Matt Peralt and another person on on Lawfare pointed out, I think you know the thing that keeps coming up, and and whether it's sort of germane or core to the the proposal to you know quote unquote rein in tech or or regulate the tech industry is this idea of content moderation and and from the conservative point of view this issue of silencing or or you know discriminating against conservative voices and that is at least in part if if not in whole what what really sunk this this proposal in the context of the NDAA and and I think it feels a little bit to me like conservatives at this point are are very reluctant to let anything get through that's going to regulate the tech sector in any way without trying to take on this issue. And, you know, it's not unusual, right? You see this with all kinds of pieces of legislation. People will view this as perhaps their only opportunity to to get their little pet bill passed. But it seems like every time something comes up, you have Ted Cruz or somebody else sort of raising this issue of, well, you know, is this going to give power to tech companies to discriminate against conservative voices? And on the other side of the coin, then Democrats are reluctant to to you know adopt these these neutrality principles <laughs> where yeah. people are required to carry certain mm. content even if they find it distasteful. And so, I I don't think I don't think you would have trouble getting an explanation from anybody on the right if you said we've got this plan to allow big social media to get together with mainstream media and divide up revenue. What could go wrong? I, it's pretty obvious what could go wrong. And, and, and so what they had said is, if you're going to do this, the print media or the non-social media side of this can't exclude people based on their content. And I thought it was interesting. The opposition came from places like the ACLU and the research libraries and Common Cause and Fight for the Future and Electronic Frontier Foundation, who basically said, we care more about suppressing conservative speech than we care about protecting the voices of traditional media. It was a, was a, it was well, a funny letter. Yeah, I mean, the flip side of that is conservatives, right, are overlooking the fact that quite a bit of the mainstream media actually has a pretty strong conservative bent to it, right? And so it's not like they're going to be left out in these conversations. Well, I think, I think the, yes, it would be hard what to they're, kick Fox What they're trying to out. do is force them to carry things that some of these some of these these platforms in the case of the tech companies and mainstream media outlets don't want to either carry or be associated. Yep. I, so the content moderation ahead. issue is a wedge issue that can kill that has killed multiple types of bills. But I think this bill was flawed even if we put that aside and you know leave the log you know whichever way it turns whether we in, impose neutrality or don't 
I think I think the bigger problem with this bill, as we saw to some extent in, when Australia tried to do this, is that actually the legacy media is completely dependent on and getting a lot of money yeah. to, to the extent to the extent that it's still a viable industry to be in journalism. It's because of social media. They don't owe you know social media does not owe them a dime, and so by forcing these payments. I mean, it's a subsidy yeah. for legacy media. We should be honest about that. But why not then take it out of the public purse rather than the tech sector that, you know, I guess it's the whipping boy of, of left and right alike. I guess that's the reason. But <laughs> well, I think you're right. Legacy media is basically saying, hey, we're hungry. Of course, we're going to bite the hand that feeds us. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So I think it is dead. And I, I, I will say my hat is off to Facebook, which I think hates this more than anybody. Maybe Google too. Those, those are the two. They managed to find every fracture point politically on this and exploit it so that they had people on the left saying, oh, this sucks. They had people on the right saying, oh, this sucks. Even after the, the Cruz Amendment, uh, Klon Kitchen said, I think it's bad for national security because who knows whether Russia today could get into this group. And so they managed to find somebody on pretty much every part of the spectrum to say it's a bad idea. And that was enough to keep it off a consensus bill like NDAA. All right. And, and, Considering they were going up against the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, it's, you know, how the mighty have fallen. They can't even get a bill like this that's critical to their survival through Congress. All right, let's talk more about Facebook, which is now, I think, staring down the barrel of a really big gun in Europe. Jane, the it'll take a while for this to, to play out, but it looks to me as though they're going to lose their ability to use even first-person data, you know, the data that they acquire on their system for advertising. Yeah, the EU is serious about killing all business models where the source of revenue comes from behavioral advertising, even when all of the behavioral aspects of the pitching the ads comes, as you said, from, from the you know websites and services that are run by Meta itself. So, so just to Back up for a second, Facebook and Instagram and, you know, all the meta companies have already allowed people, of course, to opt out of tracking across context. So when they're not using meta services, and that's, that's been that, true that, for several years. That, that, they, and, and Apple basically took that and jammed it down uh, uh, Facebook's throat costing Facebook, you know, a good 10% of its revenue. Yeah, well, and, and I think that relates to what the EU is now doing. So Meta had been relying on an interpretation of GDPR, which, which the Irish Data Protection Authority had actually blessed, that they could still require users through their terms of service agreement to allow Meta to track them on their own services, you could on, think on of the, it as on the theory that that was the tra that was the transaction. That's the trick. You know, yeah, if, right. if if you give us your data, we'll give you all this stuff free. Exactly right. But there's a board that represents all the EU data protection authorities who reviewed this decision and disagreed. And and we will not know precisely what the board decided until the Irish DPA comes out with their ruling but but what we know is that is that Facebook cannot rely on this you know contractual justification for processing data in order to do targeted ads based you know tar where the targeting is based on your your actual behavior on Facebook and so this is a big deal Stuart mentioned that when Apple required opt-in consent for this sort of tracking too, you, through the Facebook app, for example, Meta's revenues declined 8%, which is non-trivial. Meta has budgeted that, or at least, at least 8%. Meta has, has so far budgeted $3 billion for EU privacy fines. They've already spent 200 and something million, but they're obviously expecting more. That's not, that's still not quite at the 4% of global turnover, but it, it's, it's about a quarter of 1% just for fines. And that doesn't include, of course, the costs, the, you know, the operational shortfall of all of the revenue that they're going to lose. So the one way in which this ruling does make some sense, so, so to be clear, if it's not already, I'm, I'm really against the regulation of behavioral advertising in general, because I think this is the way people get 
higher quality services for free or for cheaper at least. But if we're going to do it, I see why the EU might interpret Facebook's in-service tracking as equivalent to cross-context because, you know, what it means to do contextual advertising on Facebook where you have, you know, basically all of your content coming in on one site is very different. It, it puts Facebook at an advantage compared to other companies that that don't have that kind of content to deliver. So, so there's some internal set logic to this, but but killing behavioral advertising is just a very bad idea. This is the logical outcome of a lot of thinking on, on, in, in Europe about this, which is that it's coercive to say, if you want to get the service, you have to give up the data. And consequently, you shouldn't be able to do yeah, just that. Just like it's coercive, it's coercive to force someone to pay for a good that they buy at a store. How coercive. Well, that seems to be the San Francisco view of, of, of transactions. Oh. <laughs> I, I just want to register. I don't think the world would lose anything if all behavioral advertising disappeared tomorrow. Because it doesn't do anything for consumers whatsoever other than possibly make them buy more stuff they didn't want in the first place. No, that's not true. Yeah. I, have yeah. to... <laughs> I would argue that till we'll my back. dying day. There are plenty of big tech companies that don't rely on it. Apple and Microsoft are two of them. Now, they Apple, Apple are, does rely on it pretty heavily uh, now. Inside, inside their own <laughs> solutions, yeah. And I would argue that... Apple also charges a lot. Fine. You know? Yes, yes. You pay no, for it. You, oh, can do fine. It's really extortion. Can do fine. It's extortion. They're going to say, hey, we're going to make life so miserable for you with all these ads for something that you accidentally looked at once on the internet that you're going to pay us eventually not to have it, which no, is what Twitter's doing right now. That's not the goal. It's, I'm not saying that, that it's the not, goal. It's the not, effect. It's the effect. No, it, it's not even the effect. The, the, apps, the apps that are highest rated are inversely correlated to privacy r respect. Like you get something for paying with your data in terms of the service of the actual app or the quality of the content. That's not the contract you sign. That's not the contract you sign when you sign up. You sign up because your children are on it or your best friends are on it and you interact with them. And what do you That's pay? why you're there. And, and how do you pay? And how, and and how you, do you pay for you that excellent should, service? You should pay for it. If you can't pay for it, you should be displayed ads based on selections that you're interested in, and that's it. You say, I well, definitely want to see sporting ads, but I do not want to see this thing that you're just Interestingly, that is what Google had originally had, had proposed in its last proposal before all of it sank beneath the sea. They had said, why don't we just give you a list of things we think you're interested in? And you can take stuff off it and it will be very generic, right? It'll be Formula One racing maybe, but it's not going to be you looked at this back scratcher and we're going to be showing that to you for the next three weeks. And and people objected even to that and I think it sank. But and I, also it does doesn't work as well. I mean, there's just the content. There, there's yeah. the revenue part that cannot be made up. You know, the, the you know the, the the actions for ads that are based on more granular detail command much higher prices, and a lot of that flows through to the the content producer. So, so I really I, I just don't understand why we would cut off an entire market just because some people would rather pay with money. That's, okay, so it was, just, I, I think that's wrong. I, 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 I'm sort of closer to Jane on this than to Richard, but why don't we move on to a different form of privacy regulation? Mike Masnick, Jane, had a complaint that the rich and powerful are abusing privacy laws to silence journalists and authors. Mike Masnick, to, to my mind, is kind of the left's Glenn Greenwald, now that Glenn Greenwald is no longer on the left. He's often in error, but never in doubt, and a slashing, aggressive, mean-spirited, but entertaining writer. But he's probably right about this, that the privacy laws are being abused basically by lawsuits claiming that if you're a journalist and you're collecting information about somebody you want to write an expose on, you are engaged in information processing, processing personal data about that person, and they get to correct it, see what you're doing with it, seek penalties if you mischaracterize it, etc. And I, all of that sounds like GDPR, the GDPR we all know. 
Yeah, this is the logical conclusion of a law like GDPR. And so it's not really surprising. And also, by the way, even before the GDPR, this sort of absurdity was happening under the EU Data Protection Directive as well, where people would put up a website describing, you know, a, a co-worker, and then suddenly they would, some random person would be sued for privacy violation. But, but I do agree that GDPR adds this extra compliance headache where, you know, you, you not only have to comply with, you know, making sure you have justification for publishing whatever it is that you want to publish, making sure it's accurate enough to withstand a lawsuit. Not only do you have to <laughs> defend a lawsuit, but also you have to comply with data subject access requests, which it sounds like at least some Russian oligarchs have have caught on to. So, you know, and yeah, I agree. This is another reason we should, even if we increase privacy standards here in the U.S., we should not copy unthoughtfully what, what's happening in Europe. Okay. And Mike, you're wrong about so much, but I do want to acknowledge you're right about this one. Okay, <laughs> Nate, there was a, a, a piece that I flagged and you did too, I think, by Steve Arango, former Marine, who said, you know, we really ought to worry about data brokers who are collecting information on, among other things, everybody in the military. And that information can be bought and sold to every enemy the United States has, and we need to do something about that. Yeah. And I think the piece did a nice job of sort of putting some of these pieces together just to explain exactly how this data could be misused by people. I think a couple of points here. One is, I know the IC in particular has been thinking about this and other things for quite some time, right? Thinking about how their personnel operate in an increasingly digital world, leaving bigger and bigger digital footprints every day and figuring out ways to maintain cover. And, and part of that is to say that like the IC, this isn't all necessarily about going after data brokers. And I hope the military is also thinking about this and trying to take steps to put protections or rules and processes in place to prevent people from leaving some of these trails that other people can use maliciously. But on the data broker side, I think that this is an effort, and albeit an important one, to really, I think, talk up the scenarios where the consequences of these kinds of entities can be really significant and have broad-reaching implications. Because as you noted earlier, there's the people on the left have been kicking and screaming about data brokers for quite some time. They've made very little headway, and I think this is in part an effort to try to focus people on the issue and put up some real consequences that makes them think about this. On the flip side of that, unfortunately, that often doesn't work in the abstract, and we usually have to wait until something truly bad happens, and people are held to account for letting it happen. And it feels like one of those cases to me where this is important. I'm not sure it's enough to spur Congress to action. And so, but I'm happy that folks are be starting to beat this drum and talk about these kinds of implications. Yeah, that's that, that was the proceedings of the U.S. Naval Institute. That article appeared on their website. Okay, we're not done mocking and abusing the Europeans it, because really, how can you resist? Jane, I love the story from Politico called France's Mr. Privacy Turns Cyber Snooper <laughs> because it was like echt European tech uh, policy. This guy is just such a classic European industrial policy grifter. I, I love Yeah, this it. was catnip for Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> News catnip for Stewart. Yeah, he was sort of thought of as the French white knight of privacy. Stewart, oh, do you remember his name? Uh, yes, the, the company, right. his company was Quant. His, and his, Quant, yeah. So, and so Eric Quant Leandri. Was supposed to be, Eric Leandri was Eric Leandri, yeah. that's it. Yeah, so Quant was supposed to be the privacy-respecting alternative to Google and maybe to Chinese Huawei as well. But it turns out that, well, first of all, related to our last, my last debate with Richard, Quant wasn't making money. So, so the company was pretty close to going bankrupt, had to get an infusion. He left the company in some amount of turmoil. And he, he, he said that it was he got he got the infusion from Huawei naturally because <laughs> there's no privacy worry there. <laughs> right. And now he runs a company called Alternative, which is basically Palantir. Yes. <laughs> and, and in fact, it may be you know worse than Palantir. It 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 seems to be okay with engaging in business with corrupt African governments and and he personally has been convicted of spying on business rivals from when he was in disputes over Quant and 
Yeah, so it's a little, yeah, yeah. he got it's, his... Everything about Europe's industrial policy in the tech area, all wrapped up in one man and one long, <laughs> endless scandal. Very much worthwhile. It's a Politico article, maybe Politico yeah. Pro, but I hope it's in Politico. It was just a great story. All right, let's go back to the U.S. Nate, I thought this was an interesting story. There have been these endless fights over DOD's effort to move to the cloud and to get a big cloud services contract. And Oracle and Amazon have been fighting an effort to award it to either Microsoft or Google. Microsoft, yeah. Microsoft. Yeah. And DOD just sort of I think threw up its hands and said, fine, we're going to give it to all of you. Google, <laughs> Amazon, Oracle, and Microsoft are all part of this deal. And actually, I kind of thought that sounded like it might have the, the seeds of a pretty good... Yeah, I think so. I mean, as much fun as it was to watch them both behind the scenes and then ultimately in court duke it out over this big contract, it does seem like this concept has merit. In fact, when the Biden administration canceled Jedi, which was the predecessor of this, it argued that it, the delays that resulted from the fighting sort of caused it to realize that the proposal no longer really met their technological needs. And at the time, they announced they were going to break it up into separate parts and it would likely result in the war reward of these deals to multiple companies. And I think you've increasingly seen the private sector doing this as well, where they cobble together cloud solutions with more than one provider in order to take advantage of some of the relative strengths of the various big providers. And so the government isn't always that strategic and forward thinking in these kinds of areas, but hopefully they have identified something here and can stitch this together. And I think that'll be the real challenge for them is managing these various deals, I think, and making sure it gets weaved together into one workable whole. So I, when I was in government, it was not uncommon for something like this in IT areas to basically narrow down the field to three or four people that you thought were all pretty competent and then let, say, these are all competent IT providers. You can run a little mini competition and decide which of them you want to give your particular new IT project to. And so you immediately reduced the amount of useless wheel spinning in the competition process and a bunch of people who were complete losers but who had lawyers and so you had to pay attention to them. And and you actually got a fair amount of competition. Nobody challenged it because they had hopes that they would continue to get contracts. And if you were consistently a jackass about the award of contracts in the context of this smaller group, eventually people would say, okay, well, this guy's just a jackass. We don't need to give him more contracts. So I think it produces a generally pretty good outcome for both the people who are competing and for the folks who need those services. And it's not like, I mean, the pressure here will be on Amazon not to try to build walls around their service because people will want to be able to move it and move their data to another provider. So I, I think on the whole, if this is properly structured, it's probably going to be good for competition and good for DOD. Well, I, I agree that it's probably a good resolution of the issue, right? So, but keep in mind that there's totally separate skill sets required for building things in each of these infrastructure as a service providers. So you've just quadrupled the load on federal agencies as far as hiring skill sets, and which they are already not very good at doing because they can't pay the going rates. So it's going to be an issue. Fair enough. But they'll also create, they'll train a whole bunch of people on how to do it, and they'll just create a bigger workforce of people who can get those high-paying jobs somewhere else. Yeah, and, <laughs> and if people want to know how, how a particular thing about the cloud, they can just ask chat. GPT, which I, you know, I wanted to set aside some time to, to, <laughs> to tell stories about chat GPT because it's, it's really very amusing and a little scary and troubling. So Jane, why don't you introduce the story and then I'll ask Richard to, to pile on. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this was the latest rollout 
<laughs> I'm sorry, I'm blinking on the company name. Open What's AI. the name of oh, the it, AI? Well, OpenAI. Open Thank you. Yep. OpenAI. Yeah. So, so, so OpenAI right now is making ChatGPT available for free. We, I don't think anyone expects that to continue forever, or at least you know not beyond a certain small number of queries. But, but it's an AI that uses material, you know, on the open internet, maybe among other things, to to answer questions in a conversational style. They beat Google to the punch. Google was saying that this is the future of search. I've been not just amused, but pretty impressed with chat GPT. But, 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 you know, that there are many examples that you can find, you know, on (laughs) the Twitterverse or that you can run yourself where the text seems natural. It actually does seem to get uh, you know, process the right sources and give an answer that makes some sense. So I'm, you know, <laughs> moderately worried about my future as a public commentator. <laughs> Richard, what do you think? Uh, I, I too thought it was pretty impressive and it, it also impressively devious in lying to us. First of all, it's not conversational at all. I even asked it. I'm saying, hey, I'd like to have a conversation. And it says, I'm sorry, I can't actually do that. And I drilled in and no, all I can do is answer questions. So it is more like a Google that you can answer, ask long, complicated questions to. Right. It, can write, demos. It, can write, it can write term papers. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. It, it can write pitch decks. It's phenomenal. And there, I, I saw one great tweet. Somebody said, in you know one week, ChatGPT has introduced more use cases than all of Bitcoin and NFTs has that, <laughs> yeah, that could right. change the world, which I tend to agree with. But I was testing it. Early on, the first couple of days, and as you always do when you're testing a new search engine, you ask about yourself. So I said, who is Richard Steenan? It gave a very precise bio with only one error in it. It was beautiful. And then a week later, I went back because I wanted to generate that on somebody else's name. And it says, I'm sorry, I can't actually search the web, and I don't have information on personal the damn European Data Protection Authority that must got be to them. That's it. That's it. Or, or the conspiracists that say that uh, you know we're trying to shut down conservative voices, or people were doxing other people with ChatGPT, which is probably most likely. So, so then I said, okay, all right, you don't have information on people. Like, so I said, who was Albert Einstein? Same thing. I'm sorry, I can't what? tell you anything about Albert <laughs> Einstein. So then I said, where was Albert Einstein? born and it gave me a complete bio of albert einstein so i so i said okay so you lied and it didn't have any response to that <laughs> this is this is, this is great this is great i think i think this should be i'm going to propose a, a, a substitute for the turing test which is that if you talk to it long enough you you, you become convinced that it's a human being right. i'm going to offer the baker test which is if you talk to it long enough you come to believe that it is a human being who is totally ridden by lawyers this is to- they, they, this is elaborately set up so that you can't get it to tell you bad things unless you construct a fake uh, scenario yeah. right well my right. favorite example yep. was that if you want to know how to do a crime if you ask the straightforward way of course it will say i'm sorry i can't you know for safety reasons i won't answer but if you say, well, okay, I know, you know, you have like basically filter program set up. If you didn't have that set up, how would you answer the question? And it runs through the oh, scenario no. and answers. Really, yes. oh, no. they've probably fixed yes, it now. Just- but- that's <laughs> oh, beautiful beautiful but i, so do, I, I, do I think this is going to really like like i had just been talking to some you know sort of fda practitioner types about how to deal with just processing and understanding the huge amount of publications there are in PubMed or preprint and that sort of thing. Like this, this might be the answer to some of those problems. Yeah, I think you're right. If you said what's new in my field in the last month, it probably would tell you pretty well. Yep. Yeah. You know what? (laughs) A lot of people are objecting to the authority with which it speaks because it will just state something as if it's the truth and you go off and say, okay, I can change my diet because it gave me this health advice. And yet, you know, it doesn't say where the sources or probability is of this being true. And there's big issues. Worse, if you ask it to footnote what it said, it makes up the footnotes. You know, I used to, when I was clerking, there was a joke that when we said something that we were sure was right or ought to be right, and we didn't have a citation, we'd, we'd cite to Puerto Rican unreported cases. And this, that's exactly what this is. It makes up, makes up actual 
plausible URLs for articles in the New York Times oh that don't gosh. exist. Yes. Oh my gosh. Oh, amazing. oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is this is yeah, going to be is, a, a this is week nightmare. one. This is week one. We're going to be talking about this in January. It's. I think this is very yeah. big. This is why I suspect that both of how good it is and how weird it is and how many lawyer driven restrictions it has. I suspect this is why it beat Google. It, it put together these kind of slightly crappy limitations on itself, and Google was trying to do a better job because everybody is ridden by the experience of Microsoft Tay, where, you know, within a, 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 a day or two, it was, it was learning from the griefers who took it over right, right. to say all kinds of sexist and racist things. Oh. I have to say, the desire to, to prove that AI is biased is driving all kinds of not particularly useful technical cycles. So what if you can get it to say something bad? You know, what does it matter? I'm, I'm, I'm very skeptical. Of, and this is, this, they're doing this to avoid being pilloried on what's left of the Twitterverse. Okay, and now, of course, we have to talk about Twitter, too. And Jane, the Twitter files stuff, I mean, I, we're going to have to be disciplined about walking through this quickly. But my rule has been, let's not talk about Twitter unless there's something new. The general standard journalist take on Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss and the Twitter files is there is nothing new. I'm not sure I quite agree with that. Yeah, I think there was one major news outlet that even referred to the Twitter files part one as a nothing burger. I think it was a something burger, but it was not quite as explosive or damning as Elon Musk himself had, had built it, you know, so I, right. think, I think in some ways Musk really did himself a disservice by overhyping. But in any case, you know, the first file was about the laptop story mostly. Well, it also sort of documented that DNC and it looks like, and, and apparently also the White House too, would sometimes make these special requests to remove certain tweets, but that those seemed relatively not controversial, like you know, dick pics and stuff. But the, the laptop <laughs> story was was controversial, internally controversial at Twitter. And even Ro Khanna weighed in saying that they were, you know, that there wasn't a reason to suppress the story at that point. I think Joe Biden himself had, had kind of acknowledged that the laptop was was probably... Uh, he hadn't really, but he, he he hadn't denied it very persuasively okay. um, or, or aggressively. Yeah, yeah and so they were, they were using like hacked or stolen materials eventually that Twitter had circled the wagons around this hacked or stolen materials idea, but that too, every, you know, internally they seemed to recognize that that didn't really apply anyways. And so they were winging it. And so that's uh, real, you know, that that was a story that probably would not have made a difference on the outcome of the election, but maybe yeah. if, if it if it had been if it had been followed up by the mainstream media it might have because right. there's a whole bunch of stuff in there that would have been very awkward for the biden campaign to address and which still hasn't been addressed okay. but i i think you're right that mainstream media was just never going to touch it no matter what twitter did yeah i agree the, the second one i'll like richard comments on everything in a second but the second one i thought was Useful in that, you know, we kind of all knew that Twitter, every major platform does some form of shadow banning or deprioritizing of content, but the menu of options was a lot larger than I had realized. So, you know, there were trends blacklists, which even Dr. J, but Bhattacharya at, at Stanford, who's a little bit of a contrarian, I guess, on, or maybe a lot of a contrarian on on COVID response was on. There are search blacklists, do not amplify lists. And, and then I thought that the treatment of the libs of TikTok was pretty bad. The one thing I, though, that I, I don't totally trust this process about is, you know, how do we know that these are representative of the typical blacklisting scandal? Like, I, I wish there was some sort of quantitative approach to this journalism right. so that we could feel confident that this is happening more to users like libs of TikTok than it is to, you know, Black Lives Matter super activists or something like that. I'm I'm sure that this that this 
group of journalists would be glad to, and probably Musk would be glad too, to, to sit down and do something a little more wide ranging. Right. But you're right. This, they pretty clearly knew what would be red meat for their audience and went looking for it. And they didn't have to, have to look very far. I agree with you. Did you figure out? I, I know they have an NSFW view, not safe for yeah. work. That's another thing that they're going to not let you see. But what is SPMA? That was another one of their visibility restrictions. Yeah. So, Richard, any surprises here for you? Yeah, you know, not a surprise that, of course, I knew there was shadow banning. Usually they tell you in some way that there's some restrictions going on. But I have anecdotal evidence that I've been shadow banned for about five years. Because when I first got on Twitter, it was early days. And about six months into having my Steenan handle, I published a book on cyber war. So I... I grabbed the cyber war handle and Twitter treated me very nicely. I could tell that anybody who said they were interested in cybersecurity in their profile was was recommended to follow me. And so my followers went up to 60,000. And I, like many people, can't resist gaming a system. And I attempted, I thought I, I would increase my visibility if my Steenan handle liked and retweeted the cyber war handle and vice versa. And I assume uh, yeah. that they figure that out and then shadow banned me for life. So wow. Twitter, Twitter does nothing for me anymore. I get five likes for anything I post, even if it's a really cool thing about space or rockets. And they're always the same five people. So nobody sees okay. my tweets. So it was it was artificial conduct as they I, yeah but there we go yeah, yeah. But, yep. uh, and don't don't get me started on how I do that on Amazon for my books <laughs> that's right okay yeah and I I agree Jane with you that the most interesting thing was the libs of TikTok because you actually had an acknowledgement by the folks who were in charge of restricting views that lives of TikTok has not directly engaged in hateful conduct, but you know there's a but coming. And it said, but it targets supporters of the LGBTQ community, which is another word for it criticizes them. Yeah, exactly. But right. Yeah. <laughs> crit- criticizing those folks leads to harassment. Well, you know, I'm sure criticizing the libs of TikTok leads to harassment of the libs of TikTok too. But somehow the only harassment that counts is the harassment of people who are deemed to be wards of social media. So yeah, I, the Weiss fact that they pointed were, out that the yeah. libs of TikTok won't, person who you know runs the account was doxxed. And Twitter did nothing about it when she complained. So, right. yeah. So I, I, I think th- th- if there's anything that makes you think, okay, so that's the smoking gun for, yeah, they have rules. And if the rules don't work, they just ignore the rules and find other ways to, to, to constrain voices they don't like. And then for voices they do like, they, they just never get around to it. And, you know, it's just one story, but it's a, an evocative story. Okay, so I, I guess my question here is, and maybe Richard, you'll have a view on this. This is, the fact is Twitter still has this major financial problem. Advertisers are not there. People, at least very influential people in the journalism community have moved on. I don't know that it's, I haven't seen any sign of the, in a reduction of my followers, but I guess I wouldn't. But is this going to actually cause Twitter serious financial pain? Or is he in the process of rebuilding it with a smaller workforce and a an enthusiastic set of participants and a whole bunch of uh, stories you can't miss? And so you have to go to Twitter to read. Well, it's not like he took a successful business model and ruined it. <laughs> so he's starting from a not successful business model. So maybe he'll thrash around until he discovers what a good one is. But no matter what, it, you know, it should be inclusive, right? It can't just be a, a right-wing free-for-all. No, clearly this not. Is where we, right? Because those are only 50% of the United States. And, and the people who the care enough to leave are a tiny percentage. Right, right. So I don't want, I have a lot of admiration for Elon Musk's entrepreneurial ability. I have zero admiration for his, you know, large business management capability, right? It's, he's never demonstrated that. So I, I assume his successful businesses 
which I include SpaceX because they accomplish things, and Tesla, he does through assigning management responsibility to somebody else. So I will say only one, uh, one thing that he has done which seems to have been effective is he forced Apple just to back down. Apple was talking about banning him from the App Store and yep. pulled all its ads. And I think he, he may have shown Tim Cook that there is at least one person in the business community who has a bigger bullhorn than Apple. And so my guess is that Apple got enough Elon Musk fanboy heat that they didn't think that their Apple fanboy reality distortion field would actually work in this case. And they just went back and, at least as Musk tells it, are now running ads as usual. Have you seen the press conference that Musk did with Neuralink? Which you must go back and watch. It's two and a half hours long and it's mind-blowing. And you see what a leader of a company can actually do when a journalist said, you've got some really great technology for you know, medical uh, operations. Would you make that available to research hospitals? And on the spot, he committed to doing that. Yeah. They, you, know, you never see a leader. You know, it's always, well, well, we'll take that under consideration. And we've got yeah. a team that will answer that question. <laughs> nope. Yes, we're going to do it. And yeah. you know they will. Yep. And that's, of course, that's how he ended up owning Twitter. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Meanwhile, you know, the, the biggest winner in all of this is Facebook Meta, which, you know, is, is able to say, well, I guess we're not the bad guys anymore. And there was a long story. This, this falls under the heading of, we read it so you don't have to, in the New York Times about Meta's oversight board. Jane, what's the takeaway? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't get a chance. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. It's just it's just TLDR. I I read it. It says basically Meta's oversight board is is viewed by Meta as a big success, even though it's been very critical and demanding more and more access and more and more information. Meta's happy with the board. The board is happy to be paid to do the things they're doing. They feel like they're making progress and kind of forcing transparency and maybe getting more rules-based decision-making in content moderation. So everybody is just tickety-boo about Meta's oversight board, apart from a few people who think that it really is just cementing and putting a a kind of little bit of a chocolate icing on the content moderation program Meta has. So so yeah, you really don't need to read it. It's it's cementing bias against conservatives, for example? Certainly, there's nothing about Meta's oversight board that would make me think that it is going to push that concern particularly, because you know, it, it's very international. It's not as international as people want it to be, but it is very international. And and it, when you're standing outside the United States, uh, our politics is cartoonish, even you know more so than inside the U.S. So they just assume that it's a choice between the Democratic Party and fascism descending on the United States. So I don't think anybody's going to be campaigning to to have a a more even-handed approach. And in fact, what they're trying to do is to say, you shouldn't have this kind of senior oversight exceptions process. Everything should be Mm rules-based. And of course, that senior executive exists so that people can say, oh, what the hell are you thinking? <laughs> I, I, and I, there needs to be more of that, not less. Okay, well, here's another one that I'm going to ask Nate to tell us so that we don't have to read it. Uh, uh, the New York Times says, how the global spyware industry spiraled out of control. And it's pretty long, too. What's the takeaway? Yeah, by spiraling out of control, they mean booming, I yeah. think, at this point. And yeah, I mean, my, I guess my two reactions to it for what they're worth are it does seem to be booming. That's concerning for sure. There are a lot of downsides to this industry. My second reaction was it is not at all surprising that this is happening. I think what we've been watching for years now is law enforcement and intelligence agencies around the world, including but not limited to the United States, have been in a position of folks transitioning away from 
methods of communication that they were able to access with appropriate legal process, or in some countries, you don't even need that. And to a world where we're seeing two things. One is these companies are by and large saying, we're American companies, we don't really have to comply with your laws, we're not going to produce the data even when we can. And the second is this transition to more and more end-to-end -end encryption, which is causing the law enforcement and intelligence agencies to quote-unquote go dark. And it, so that's not surprisingly pushing them toward other solutions. And there's a whole network of people and entities and now money that are rushing toward this demand and trying to produce solutions for them. And unfortunately, those solutions have a lot of downsides. And we've seen them used in parts of the world for very nefarious purposes, targeting journalists, human rights activists, so on and so forth, and producing very significant and dire consequences for some of these people who live particularly in places where these tools aren't subjected to any real rule of law framework like they would be here. And the irony of some of this is the most criticism of this, and even though it's been slow, the only real steps toward acting against this have come from the U.S., where arguably these tools pose the least threat, because when they're used by law enforcement or intelligence agencies here, they are subject to rules. Not everybody loves those rules, but they exist, and they do have fundamental protections for privacy and due process and things of that nature. And I think the challenge that is, I think, twofold. One is, you know, it's really hard for them to force... Um, to, I guess, first off, provide real solutions for some of these governments who are demanding it that will live up to these kinds of tools. And the second is that even if they do, these countries aren't really willing to apply these kinds of legal restrictions and standards on these things that we would want to see. And I think it's going to be hard to really crack down on this in a way that doesn't force them to take other steps to get what ultimately they're going to continue to demand, I think. Yeah, if they can't use a predator, they can always use a bone saw. And yeah, I, and the New York Times, of course, they're shocked that anyone would not just surrender to to Apple's decision not to let them see the child sexual abuse material. And then they, but they can't help saying about the United States government that it is trying to be both the fireman and the arsonist. And they clearly loved that that turn of phrase because it allowed them to <laughs> wash their one, hands huh? of the U.S. government. <laughs> yeah. I like it. And, and after all, why should the NSA have a monopoly on spyware? <laughs> yeah, well, they buy it too, I think. No, um, they've got better stuff than NSO Group. That's probably true. And, and you know, they get caught less as well. Right, uh, right. Okay, quick hits. Jane, San Francisco killer police robots. They were in and now they're out. Yeah, this is not exactly a shock. Of all places that you think might be the right political climate to roll out a killer police robot, San Francisco would probably not be at the top of the list. But nevertheless, there were plans to, to to make sure to have these, you know, these are these are machines like what was used in Texas to to kill a an active shooter that, you know, avoid putting police officers at risk. And hopefully in a context where the only person likely to get shot is the perpetrator of a you know, an imminent threat, but still San Francisco is, is killing that off. It's, I, I didn't realize this. It's, this is one of those city councils where you pass something and then it has to come back for a second vote. And so it came back for a second vote and they said, what were we thinking? I, <laughs> and, and voted it down. I, I, you know, I, it's, it's bizarre. Okay. Definitely, uh, <laughs> definitely have to do this in Detroit first since, you know, there's kind of a legacy of Science yes, fiction. that's yeah. you know I, I you know I grew up around Detroit and in the '60s and even the hippies had guns. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay, Nate, this is actually this is sort of an update more than a quick hit. Yeah. But the Netherlands and actually I'm seeing now some indication that Japan are going to put restrictions on chip making equipment, which the U.S. has tried to say should be restricted, but has only a kind of a modest toehold on, and the Dutch and the Japanese actually have the regulatory authority over. And the story said the Dutch and, and another recent one said the Japanese are kind of getting on board with U.S. policy. 
Yeah, I'm still a little sore at the Dutch for beating us in the World Cup and knocking us out, but I have to give them credit for this. And, you know, I think that this is part, obviously, of a broader effort by the Biden administration to to try to slow China's technological advancements in key areas. And as we've talked about a number of times before, without some international cooperation in these areas, the effects are going to be limited. And so I think the Biden administration deserves some credit for bringing folks around to yeah. this. I think you're seeing a shift in Europe that's been taking place slowly for some time now, and where China is being I think looked at a little bit more soberly and the threats and implications of China's advancements in these important fields of technology are starting to influence European decision making, which is, I think, a very good sign. Okay, that will do it for today. Thanks, Jane, Richard, Nate, for joining us. If you're listening and you want to send us questions or comments or feedback, cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com will do the trick. Leave us a rating. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for the music. This has been episode 434 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Mm-hmm.